Let's open up our Bibles this morning to the book of Micah, the Old Testament prophet Micah. And as Bo thanked uh, Donald for his work in the cantata, I want to remind us of Anne and Robert's work as well. Because Donald just stands up, basically Donald stands up there and goes like this, you know, the work is going on over here, okay, <laughs> and, and, and the, at uh, the dress rehearsal, I think Donald was asking Robert to do things he hadn't asked him to do prior to that. Can you, can you fill in here? Can you take care of that? And so uh, Robert and Ann, we're very grateful for your gifts. The Old Testament prophet Micah, and I bet if you're paying attention, you know that we're eventually going to end up in chapter 5, so just go to chapter 5 of Micah. We're going to go to a couple places throughout it, but that's where we're eventually going to end up, and um, we'll read that when we get to it, so let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are thankful for this time, thankful that before we were born, before our grandparents or great-grandparents and generations past, you had planned things out. And today we look at your word and the prophecy that points us to the coming of Christ. Remind us of these things, Lord, and how now we are supposed to live. To live in confidence, to rest in the things of Christ and rest within your hand. For you are the God of all things and of all time, and your ways are right and just and perfect. Fix this into our minds this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So for the next few Sundays, we're going, and in, even into Christmas Eve, it's no shock, we're going to be looking at Jesus, uh, but we're going to spend a lot of time in the Old Testament looking at the prophecies that talk about the coming of Jesus. Okay. Now, when you get into Old Testament minor prophets, there are a lot of people that just go, oh, jeez, <laughs> punishment, judgment, doom. Yeah, there's a lot of that there. And we're going to look at why there's all this punishment and judgment and doom that they are prophesying about and what that means and how the Lord is calling his people to repent. And if you don't repent, this is what comes upon you. But there's also Woven throughout a variety of these minor prophets in particular, uh, and, and here the minor prophets, I'm sorry I can't do them off the top of my head, but guys like Obadiah and Jonah and Micah and Habakkuk and Haggai and Zephaniah and Zachariah, all those guys. There is this message of hope. There is this message that if you do repent... The Lord will relent and save his people and that he always keeps for himself this remnant that is set apart, that remained faithful. And ultimately, as we will see today, he promises to send the answer to all of the issues that they face. And we know his name to be Jesus. So this morning we turn to the Old Testament prophet Micah. Now just I'm going to try to condense as much as I can here because when we get into these Old Testament prophets there's a lot of history involved and uh, you can lose yourself in the names of the kings and which king was in which kingdom and which king was bad and which king was good. Uh, suffice to say that after Solomon almost all the kings were bad. 
okay, because they did not follow the Lord God, but they walked in the way of their fathers and pursued their own desires. And it begins immediately with Solomon's son. The, the people come to him and say, if you walk in the ways that your father walked and make our burden light, we will follow you anywhere. And this young king goes to the counselors who counseled his father Solomon and said, what should I say to the people? And they said, that's, that's what the Lord wants you to do. That's what the Lord wants you to do. You know, treat these people with dignity and respect and justice, and they will follow you. And then he goes to his own buddies, you know, the guys who were kind of raised in his generation, and said, what should I do? And they said, pound them, okay? Just drive them right into slavery. If your dad worked them hard, work them twice as hard. So he goes and tells them that. That was the end, okay? That was the end. So here, after Solomon, you have basically a split into two kingdoms, affectionately known as the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom, okay? They're not divided on the Mason-Dixon line in, in Old Testament, okay? Um, you have the northern kingdom, Samaria, or Israel, okay? So I'll use those terms interchangeably. You have the southern kingdom with Judah and Jerusalem. And we know from our uh, history, if we go back, the promise of the covenant goes through Judah, who was the fourth son of Jacob. Okay, uh, some of you were mouthing it. You were not, yeah. I, I, you thought I was having a moment, didn't you? Fourth son of, because uh, sometimes I do. Okay, uh, we know that in the northern kingdom, and and uh, let me give you the context of Micah. Okay, Micah's writing about the same time as the major prophet Isaiah is writing about the eighth century before the birth of Christ, and this is coming up on the time when the northern kingdom will fall to the Assyrians. And that date is, anybody know that date? 722. Oh, yeah, now, now it all comes back to you, okay? 722, the Assyrians. The Assyrians were nasty, nasty people. And God was using them to bring judgment upon the northern kingdom for their idolatry in particular. Their idolatry in particular. And, and, and they had set up their own temple up in Dan and they had done all these bad things. And the Assyrians who were really bad because when they came in and conquered the people, they did terrible things. Okay, they just didn't enslave the people. They tortured them and killed them in very bad, bad ways. And Micah is prophesying about the destruction of the northern kingdom, which is just about to happen. And they're on the way down economically, morally, they're, they're, they're going right down the tubes. And the southern kingdom, which is where he is, is enjoying this great time of prosperity. And after he calls judgment upon the northern kingdom, he says basically, and you too, Judah, will face this if you do not repent and turn to the Lord. And they're thinking to themselves, you're kidding me, Okay. We're, we've kind of sided with the Assyrians and our future is guaranteed and everything is honky-dory, and, and, but they just do not understand what is happening. And then we see a little bit later that the Assyrians, because that's what Assyrians do after they conquered the northern kingdom, turned their attention to Judah and began to march on Judah and destroy like a plague of locusts everything that they came in contact with. And there they are surrounding Jerusalem, the city of God. And it, we see this in 2 Kings uh, 18 and 19. The Lord brings a miraculous event and kills 185,000 Assyrians throughout the night. And Jerusalem is saved. Okay? 
But Micah reminds them, he says, don't, don't think that this will happen all the time. Okay, but that was one of the problems of the people of the southern kingdom. They thought, we're children of God. We are the covenant people. Okay, our future is secure, and this will always work out, no matter how bad we get. No matter how many idols we pursue. No, many, no matter how many of our firstborn sons we sacrifice to the fire. We're God's children, and he will always watch out for us. That was the mindset that Micah had to deal with. And if you flip back one page to chapter 2, you see what he says to them. Chapter 2, verse 1. He's bringing judgment. He's calling judgment down upon these people. And three groups in particular, false prophets, false rulers, false teachers. And he says to them in chapter 2, verse 1, Woe to those who scheme iniquity who work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do it, for it is in the power of their hands. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They rob a man in his house and a man in his inheritance. Therefore, the Lord says, Behold, I am planning against this family a calamity from which you cannot remove from your necks, and you will not walk haughtily, for it will be an evil time. An evil time. He's bringing judgment upon these people for their disobedience and their falling away from him. Chapter 3, verse 9. Now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight, who build up Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice, Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price. And her prophets divine for money. These people, leaders, prophets, priests. These people who were supposed to be the pillars of society. Who were supposed to lead them in the ways of godliness. Who were supposed to make sure that justice was done. They are sold. They are being bought by the highest bidder. The priests are putting aside the things that they should do and, and, and... actually uh, usurping their position and and using it to fill their own pockets. Uh, The judges who were supposed to be uh, especially attentive to the poor, they were taking the bribes from the rich and ruling against the poor. It would be as if Warren Buffett uh, sued a homeless guy and won and took his blanket. Okay, That's how bad it had gotten in this place. And that is what Micah is calling this judgment down by the Lord upon them. So Micah is dealing with this type of mindset that says, hey, but we belong to the Lord, we'll be okay no matter what we do. We are his chosen people. But the priests had lost sight of their role. The judges were siding with the rich against the poor. And the leaders were not men of faith. They were not demonstrating the right way to behave and the right way to lead. And they were not leading their people in the paths of righteousness. Now, it was so bad that not only did they pursue those things, but they loved those things. They loved evil and they hated what was right. Now, we see in the Gospel of John that that is one of the marks of evil. Evil loves men, love the darkness, and they hate the light. 
We see this in 2 Timothy as Paul mentions this type of thing as it comes up on the last days. Men will love what is bad and they will hate what is good. So Israel just didn't one day toss aside all that they had learned and side with the Assyrians. It was a slow process. Okay, if we talked about it today, uh, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Okay, how do you boil a frog? You turn it up slowly so he doesn't know. Basically, they were sliding into idolatry. They were sliding into injustice. This had come over a period of time. And Micah says the northern kingdom is doomed. And Judah, if you don't get your stuff together, you're doomed as well. You're doomed as well. They were purposely pursuing what was evil. And they were saying what is evil is actually good. Now think about that for a moment. Have you ever seen this, maybe in our society, where what for generations has been said to be evil and what for generations is said to be good, and all of a sudden there is a change. Now what we called evil, we now call good. And what we called good, we now call evil. And you scratch your head and go, how is this possible? When did this happen? It didn't happen overnight. It was a slow slide into it. This is what happened here. Well, there's always a small remnant that the Lord saves for himself and keeps faith with the Lord. But there will be a time, he says, that your evil will be so great, look at chapter 3, verse 4, that your evil will be so great that you'll cry out to me and I won't even pay attention to you. Chapter 3, verse 4. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. Instead, he will hide his face from them at that time because they have practiced evil deeds. And practiced evil deeds is really not a strong enough way of saying. They have pursued it with a love and a burning desire. They have pursued evil and forsaken what is right. Now, Micah didn't bring the doom. He just said what the Lord told him to say. It's the Lord that brings judgment. It's all we see for their idolatry, for their pursuing glory of other gods and not our Heavenly Father. So he promises this doom upon them. But, as we said, mingled within this, there is a little bit of hope. Flip over a couple pages to chapter 6. Now you're thinking, what does this have to do with Jesus? We're getting there. Okay. Chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He says, how do we, how do we get back on the Lord's side? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Well, how do I know if I'm in with the Lord, so to speak? Are you doing justice? Do you love kindness? Do you walk humbly with your God? Now, there were two men who didn't die. Who were they? Do you remember? Enoch and Elijah. Enoch didn't die because why? He walked with God. Okay, the word, the, the phrase really means to walk in agreement with the Lord. 
The Lord was going this way. So he walked this way. He didn't stray from the left and didn't stray to the right. He walked with the Lord. Okay? You want to walk humbly with your God? Don't say, well, God, this is where I'm going. Come and bless me. No, you have to say, Lord, that's where you're going. I want to go there. I want to be there. I want to be where you're at work. I want to be where your glory is manifest in what I do so that you receive the praise and you receive the honor and glory. Humble faith in God's mercy leads us to incline our hearts to show mercy. When we walk humbly with our God, we demonstrate that in our interactions with people. When we are lovers of kindness, then our hearts flow from, kindness flows out of our hearts. When we love justice, then we will purposely do justice to the least of those around us. These are the kind of things that he's talking about here. Now we get to chapter 5. There are three passages, three sections really, that hold out hope for these people. Now understand, this is a dark time. The southern kingdom is about to fall. The northern kingdom is about to fall. The southern kingdom is doing well, but Micah is pronouncing judgment upon them. And they're basically ignoring him. Judgment comes in about 200 years or 180 years in 586. That's when Jerusalem falls. It is the judgment that Micah talks about. But he gives this word of hope. He gives it in chapter 2, he gives it in chapters 4 and 5, and he gives it in chapter 7. There is this little bit of hope. And it's not hope, really, that, that he doesn't actually believe that their hearts are going to turn. What he is saying is that the Lord will bring an answer. And he will bring that answer in the person of the Messiah. And we see the Messiah talk, spoken of again and again and again throughout these prophets. And here we have a prophecy specifically about the birth of Jesus Christ. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. He brings... His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore he will give them up until this time when she who is in labor has borne a child, then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. This is the prophecy concerning where Jesus Christ is going to be born. And Micah is giving this prophecy in the midst of all of this judgment and all of these bad things that are going to come upon these people. He says, but there is hope because God has not forgotten his promises. When God makes a covenant, when he makes these promises to his people, he says he fulfills them. And this is what he's talking about here. Now, there are a couple things that we need to know about this passage in particular and why Bethlehem is important. What is Bethlehem? Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah. Bethlehem is this little bitty village outside of Jerusalem. Uh, and in that day, it was probably uh, a gathering of, well, I don't know, 100, 200 people it was nothing very large, but it is very important because it is the city of whom? David. Okay? And we know that the Messiah is going to come from the lineage of David. Now, there are no cons um, 
there are no what? Um, uh, conse- no, what's the word I want? Luck? There's nothing. Um, coincidences, that's the word I want. I was having a moment there. Uh, there are no coincidences here, okay? When it says, from you, David, what did we read in our worship folder earlier? He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is an offspring of David. It is a prophecy from Samuel concerning the coming of the Messiah who will come from the lineage of David. And he'll be born in this little town. How, does, how do um, Joseph and Mary get to Bethlehem? Because there's a census. Because they have to go because that's where the, his city is from. That's where his people are from, from Bethlehem. So he's got to make the trip. He goes all the way there to this little bitty town. Why does God choose this out-of-the-way place for his Savior to be born? The littleness of Bethlehem is contrasted with the greatness of the birth of Christ. It's hardly worth mentioning in the clans of Judah, Bethlehem, but the Messiah comes from the lineage of David. It must come if he must be born in Bethlehem. Small, but why important? How many times does God choose what man would not choose? How many times do we find that God is over here picking a person or an event that we think is, has no import in society or in history and we would pick this one over here because, I mean, wouldn't the, wouldn't the Savior, wouldn't he be born in the capital, in a palace? That's the way men think. But here you have God saying, no, no, he's going to be born in an out-of-the-way place, and who's going to know about it? Well, I'm going to tell some shepherds out in the field, and they're going to know about it. And three or four Gentiles from the east, Gentiles from the east, are going to show up in the first year or two with these great gifts to give to him that he is the Messiah. Now, there was a guy, there was a shepherd in the Old Testament uh, who went up against some giant. Remember that guy? And, and he went in to Saul's tent, and Saul tried to put his armor on this little guy. And I can just see it. It would be like, um, you know, a, uh, an eight-year-old trying on his dad's clothes. And the shoes are way too big, and the jacket's way too big. And David says, I'm taking off the armor of men, and I'm going to put on the armor of God. And he goes out with what? A slingshot. You beat a giant fully armored with a slingshot? Oh, but he does. Why? Because Goliath is mocking the living God. And the living God will give you into my hands this day. God chooses the foolish things to shame the wise of the world. He picks Bethlehem because it's out of the way. He picks Bethlehem because nobody would think that the Savior would be born unless you have been reading the Old Testament. Then you would know he would have to be born in Bethlehem. There would be no other place but that because the prophet Micah, in the midst of these things that are going on in his time, says the Savior is coming and he will be born in Bethlehem. Isn't this the perfect illustration of salvation? That God does something that we do not expect. I mean, don't you think if God wanted to save us, we would have to do something to earn that grace? Do something to get into the good graces of our Heavenly Father? We've offended Him. It's called sin, and it's, it's all over us. 
and we have offended him. And don't you think we would have to do something to get rid of that sin? That's the way men think. But God says, you know what? I'm going to send my son, my perfect son, to give his life for you. You all, and me, have offended God. And he makes the way that that offense could be righted. See, that's not the way we think. But yet that is the grace and the mercy of our Heavenly Father. He does things according to his perfect plan. Bethlehem is this little out-of-the-way place, but yet hundreds, hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, he says, my Savior is going to be born there. Be ready for it. And the shepherds went, and the wise men went. King Herod would have gone. If they'd told him, he'd killed him. Are you ready for Jesus? Okay? This is what it comes down to. Christ came to give his life so that you might know salvation. So that your life would be different than the rest of the world. It doesn't say easier. It says different. Filled with a joy the rest of the world will not know. Is it a joy like the world understands it? No. It's something they cannot take from you. Because the Lord himself has placed it within your heart. This is the work of justification. This is salvation. This is what God does for those whom he loves, his children. And he calls us by name, and he draws us unto himself. And he told us this was going to happen hundreds, hundreds of years before it took place. Were they ready for him in the first century? Not many were. Are you ready for him today? You better be. Let's pray. Lord, you've given these words to Micah. In the midst of idolatry, in the midst of judgment, in the midst of self-reliance, you, you, tell, you tell Micah to turn and tell people that judgment is coming, destruction is coming, but yet I will send my Savior, and I will send him to this out-of-the-way town. And if you're paying attention, you will understand. Lord, you have called us unto yourself. You have called us by name. And said, turn from the things of wickedness. Turn from the ways of this world. Turn from selfishness. Pick up the cross and follow Christ. Lord, you have sent your son into this world and he's given his life for us. Come, Holy Spirit, and open our eyes to these things that our hearts and our minds and our very lives will be full of the things of Christ full of this child born in Bethlehem, full of the Son of God who has given his life for us, and full of our Savior, Savior who will return to gather those who belong to him. We ask this in his precious name. Amen.